Wooden skis are for the tourists. Hey there, and welcome back to Ski Heroes. My name is Ivan, and today is September 4th, 2022, as I'm recording episode 5 from the Ski Lodge in Houston, Texas, the skiing capital of the world. It's been two weeks since the last Ski Heroes episode came out, and what a two weeks it's been. The night before I recorded the previous episode, I had celebrated my 40th birthday, and you can maybe kind of hear this in my voice from that recording too. Although I celebrated the birthday on August 20th, my actual birthday was not until the 25th. And things really worked out for that one, because one of my best friends throughout my entire life, Pella, who lives in Austria, was getting married on August 27th. So I flew to Europe for essentially a long weekend, spending my birthday in Munich, one of my favorite cities, and then drove down to Austria for Pella and Andrea's wedding, which took place in the Tyrolean ski town of Seefeldt. It was an amazing trip and such a cool way to turn 40 and also to celebrate Pelle and Andrea. But I really think at this point my liver and my wallet are both hurting enough so it's time to adjust to the new decade and let reality set in. In either case, congratulations again to Pelle and Andrea. Another piece of exciting news is that last week I was a guest on the podcast The Skippy Report. The host, Keith Woods, reached out to me after having listened to the first Ski Heroes episode about Sondra Nurheim, and he invited me to his show. It was a great time where the concept was to drink a beer and talk about telemark skiing for an hour or so. I mean, what is there not to like? So thank you again to Keith for having me on, and I can't wait to hear the final product when you release the episode. But enough about me, let's move to this week's episode. As I mentioned at the end of the Peekaboo Street series, I felt it was time that we highlight someone from the Alps, which is maybe also the area most people think about when it comes to skiing. The Alpine region has raised so many great skiers throughout the years that there was almost an infinite and endless supply to choose from. And I really made it difficult for myself picking a French skier for this episode, as I have never studied French and I barely know a French word, aside from, of course, voulez-vous coucher avec moi ce soir. I therefore have to apologize in advance for really butchering the French language. I just want you all to know I tried my very, very best. Despite my poor pronunciation, the story is a really fascinating one. If you like to read popular science literature, such as the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, you may have heard the theory that success is the sum of a lot of small advantages. And what matters is really just to be talented enough, not necessarily super talented, and then the rest is basically hard work and small advantages that you can gain. And that really sets the stage nicely for our ski hero this week. A talented skier indeed, but also someone who really knew how to exploit technique and equipment to pull it all together for one epic Olympic race. And with that, I give you this week's ski hero, French skier Jean Varnet. For me, Varnet was a brand of sunglasses before I knew it was a skier. And damn good sunglasses too. 
but the man behind the brand is Joe Varnay. Or, that's actually not true. He is the name behind the brand. The man behind the brand was Rocher Pouillou, a French-based optometrist and ski enthusiast who had invented the Ski-Links lens technology. A technology that gave the skier clearer vision as it mirrored out glare from both the sun and reflections from the snow while maintaining a clear field in the middle of the goggle lens, and that helped the skier better see the contrasts in the terrain. The same Rocher Pouillou who offered Jean Varnet a pair of ski goggles with the Ski Links technology ahead of the 1960 Squaw Valley Olympic Winter Games in California and the United States, and who offered Varnet a piece of his company if he would license his name and let him use it as the brand name for the sunglasses he made after the 1960 games. And becoming the brand name for sunglasses that uh, used the lens technology that he had been open-minded enough to try while ski racing seemed fitting for Jean Varnet, because his story is almost as much about equipment as it is about skiing. Indeed, a very talented skier, but there were also very many other talented skiers back then, just like there are now. The young Jean had a big passion for skiing from a very young age. Born in the Tunisian capital of Tunis on January 18, 1933, a city about as famous for its skiing as Houston, Texas is, his father was a doctor in the former French colony. The family moved to Morazine in the French Alps when Jean was one year old. Jean quickly picked up skiing as his favorite hobby. As he once told a newspaper during an interview, I was not a skiing expert by any means, but I found myself in a place where skiing was the only thing to do. And then when it was time to go to the university, he enrolled in law school in Grenoble. He was not much of a talent uh, in law, nor was he that good of a student. In fact, he never even finished law school. But Grenoble offered more than studying. Advertising itself as the capital of the Alps, Grenoble would later host the Winter Olympics in 1968. But that is much after our story ends, so let's just stick with the capital of the Alps for now. In fact, Grenoble today has over 700,000 people living there, ahead of other classic Alp cities such as Innsbruck or Bolzano. And it's surrounded by ski resorts, world-class ones like Lacluza, Mejevet, and Lesse and that is, of course, why young Jean Varnet decided to study law just there, and also why he never finished his law studies. Varnet started ski racing at a serious level during his time in Grenoble. During his time in Grenoble, he also became a ski instructor, and he even wrote three books on skiing before the 1960 Olympics. As a student of skiing technique, he observed early on that while most world-class ski racers had a strikingly similar technique, there was a stark difference between how ski instructors taught skiing to beginners versus how the champions skied. The ski racers would obviously train on the mountain and on the snow, but beginners would usually start off the slope. There are even examples of beginner skiers being hoisted up in the air by ropes and belts with skis on to try to learn how to do ski turns in the air. Vernet did not understand any of this. As a ski instructor, he instead proposed the idea that beginners should start on the slope and on the snow as soon as possible, and not waste time training off the snow. As he later wrote in his 1967 book, How to Ski the New French Way, there should not be any conflict between the movements taught to a beginner 
and the movements performed by the champion. Unfortunately, very sharp separation exists in most countries between the worlds of ski competition and ski instruction. This separation is the source of the difference between the teaching methods of these countries. On the other hand, there is an astonishing similarity in the movements of ski champions of all nationalities, thus linking our own competitive and instructional programs closely together we have found it possible to improve instruction methods by u- utilizing the latest discoveries in ski racing. And this formed the thesis of what became known as the new French way of skiing. This was a radical way of thinking about teaching beginners how to ski, and it tied nicely in with Varney's adoption of technology and new technique in his competitive skiing career as well. So, as I mentioned, Varney was a fairly talented skier, but he was also surrounded by many other equally, if not more, talented skiers. But Varney's edge was his eye for innovation and technique, and his open mind to external impulses to constantly optimize both his own technique and his equipment. In the 1950s and the 60s, ski racing was an amateur's game. In fact, the Olympics at the time were also an amateur's game, where professional athletes for the longest time could not compete. To make it to the top as a ski racer, you had to fight on all fronts and not just on the snow. For one, you had to make money to keep racing, and there was also very limited support staff that traveled around with the skiers and racers, and the racers usually had to tune their own skis and take care of their own equipment. Not like today when you have a big staff taking care of all of that for you. Jean Varnet was a ski racer by heart, but a ski instructor by trade to make a living and to be able to afford to keep racing. Giving it your all on the snow was the was one way to make it to the top. But another avenue for advancement was equipment. And yet another one was technique. When straightlining, downhill skiers at the time would kind of squat down with their legs below parallel and stretch their arms out forward to reduce the air resistance, but their upper body was still fairly straight up. Varney started experimenting with leaning his upper body more forward on top of his legs so that his upper body became parallel to the ground. This reduced air resistance by a large factor, and it quickly became known as the egg position, the ski position that we now know as the tuck. And for those of you who listened to the previous episodes about Peekaboo Street, we learned how her optimized version of the tuck position was also her competitive edge as well in the 1990s. With that, Jean Varnet became the inventor of the tuck position, something that gave him a valuable edge in his racing. Former U.S. downhill racer Steve Perino would later say, The tuck seems so obvious and self-evident that we forget that someone had to invent it. But you simply cannot survive in ski racing without the tuck. And since the tuck gave Varnet an edge mostly in the speed events, downhill became his arena and the only discipline that he would really compete in. Varnay's story as a world-class skier honestly is a fairly short one. He became French champion five times in the 1950s, yet he did not qualify for the 1956 Olympics in Cortina in Italy. There's honestly very limited information available on his racing for most of the 1950s. Most of the 50s were dominated by the Austrian team and their star skier Tony Saylor in particular. The Austrian team was known as the Wunder team for their dominance on the slopes in that decade. Toward the end of the 50s, Varney at least established himself on the French national team, 
and although he was not the star skier, he did win the downhill bronze medal at the 1958 World Championships taking place in Bad Gastein in Austria, a race that of course was won by Tony Saylor, the same racer who also won the 1956 Olympics in Cortina. And that essentially and already brings us to the 1959-1960 season, the season when the 1960 Olympic Games took place in Squaw Valley in California. What Jean Varnet lacked in talent, he made up for with his ability to observe others and optimize his technique. The tuck position undoubtedly gave him a huge advantage in the downhill, even though his technique on the turns was maybe not as good as some of the other skiers. Equipment was another thing. Up through the 1950s, skis were made of wood. Alpine skis had metal edges for a long time and also had a plastic sole underneath, but the ski itself was wooden. In the late 1950s, French ski manufacturer Rossignol started experimenting with metal skis, skis that were made out of aluminum. In today's ski racing, the skis for each athlete are special made to fit the skier's height, the weight, and the overall style of skiing. This is in sharp contrast to how things were done back in the 50s when a ski manufacturer would simply drop off a bunch of skis for the ski team uh, at the beginning of the season and each skier would then kind of grab the first or be and best pair they could find that would work for them. As the 1959-1960 season started, Varney ended up with a pair of skis that were far too flexible for him. He rushed back to the Rossignol factory in sheer desperation to find some better skis for the season, and he found some shiny metallic ones that seemed to fit him well. The skis were actually a used pair and had been discarded by another skier. Varney took them for a test run at a race in Mejève early that season for the Emile Allais Cup, the race named after the legendary French skier Emile Allais. Despite one of the skis being damaged, Varney still finished fifth in the race. So he called up Rossignol to make him a brand new pair of the metal skis as the Olympics were fast approaching. Leading up to the 1960 Squaw Valley Games, metal skis had started to become a hot topic in the world of ski racing. The Austrians, usually a country on the forefront of ski innovation, swore to the wooden skis. And of course, the Norwegians had barely even heard of metal skis, and in either case, there was just no way the Norwegians would abandon the traditional wooden skis in favor of something new. But some of the French skiers saw the potential in the new ski, and Varney was one of them. In January of 1960, history was made as French skier Adrienne Duvelat became the first ski racer to, on metal skis to win the legendary Kitzbühel race in Austria. And leading up to the 1960 Olympics, the French team were doing their best at hyping the new ski, saying the team had tailor-made skis for each individual and that the skis were particularly well-suited for the light California snow. Perhaps a bit posturing there by the French, anyone who has skied in California know that the snow in Lake Tahoe area, although often abundant, is not, certainly not light and uh, can probably better be described as cement sometimes. Nevertheless, the psychological warfare was definitely ongoing, and going into the games, the French Adrien Duvillat was considered the favorite to win together with his countryman Guy Perla. Jean Varnet was considered an outsider at best, yet the Austrian Wunda team was definitely feeling the heat from the French. Right before the Olympics, Paris-based optometrist Roger Pelou had sent a batch of new ski goggles to the French team with his new ski links lens technology. The lenses had mirror technology at the top and the bottom to reflect light from both the sun and the snow, 
but in the middle, the goggle were clear, giving the skier the optimal vision for the slope. Or at least so he said. And although not adopted by all of the French skiers, Jean Vernet, of course, wanted to give this a try. Monday, February 22nd, 1960, Jean Varnet made his first and only Olympic appearance at the men's downhill race. The German Hans-Peter Lanich was in the lead as Varnet approached the start. With start number 10, wearing a leather helmet, his dark blue and white striped race suit, his black Rossignol Alley 60 metal skis with sky blue sole, and of course his iconic yellow ski links goggles, he looked like at least a million French francs as he launched onto the downhill slope. The course in Squaw Valley was not the most difficult. Although it definitely had its challenging parts, and its bumps and its jumps, the slope was fairly straightforward with lots of gliding instead of sharp turns. Right out of the gates, Varney makes a mistake. At the very first turn of the slope, he misjudges the speed and he gets pulled way too far down on the turn, losing valuable speed. Varnay immediately thinks that, well, that was it. Or probably in French, but I'm not even going to try to say that. He crouches down in his tuck position and attacks the rest of the slope. The metal skis prove superior on the slope, and so does his choice to not use ski wax on them at all. As the remainder of the slope is a fairly straight shot down, the, down to the finish line, he clocks speeds up towards 120 kilometers per hour, 75 miles per hour, breaking the California state speed limit of 65 miles per hour. He would later apologize for the speed violation. The downhill course is bathing in the California sun as Varney races down and catches some good air over several of the bumps, and of course maintaining perfect visibility with his ski lunks goggles. As he crosses the finish line, he is met by a large silence. The audio system for the speaker announcing the time had broken down, and so had the scoreboard that showed the finish time and the position of each skier. The audience was mute. In the lead before Varney was German skier Hans-Peter Lanisch. Finally, the scoreboard updates. Varney is in the lead, half a second ahead of Lanisch. Varney's countryman, Guy Perla, was in third. And the Austrian Wunda team had not even reached the podium. The French favorite to win the race, Adrienne Duvela, raced after Varney. At the middle split, he was actually one and a half seconds ahead of Arne, a huge lead. But on the bumps toward the finish, he could not stay on his feet and he wiped out, unable to finish the race. Sensationally, Jean Varnet was the Olympic champion, winning France's only gold in the Squaw Valley Olympics. And he was joined on the podium by his teammate Perla, who won bronze. And the best Austrian had finished seventh. What a win for France, and also what a win for the metal ski technology. The Austrian team later blamed their coach for not having tuned their skis well enough for the race. And indeed, one could definitely say that the 1960 Olympic downhill race was as much about the equipment as it was about the man on top of the skis. Regardless, Jean Barnet had taken advantage of everything he could take advantage of to win. His tuck position was perfect for the Squaw Valley Slope, the metal skis proved superior to wooden skis for the downhill, and finally his ski links goggles gave him cl crystal clear vision in the California sun. In 1960, Jean Varnet was only 27 years old. And aside from the 1958 World Championship bronze medal, he had really not made that much of a name for himself at all on the international stage. Nevertheless, he decided that that was it, and he retired. 
perhaps a smart decision for an above-average talented skier, but who probably never quite had what it took to become a dominant force in the world of ski racing over time. But he was able to put it together this one time for this one race to win. And as we've seen so many times before and after, winning the Olympics opens up a lot of doors. Immediately after the Olympics, Varney is offered the job as the president of the tourist office in his hometown of Morazine, and he immediately started developing the Abura Ski Resort. He, who had not finished his law studies and was far from a mathematician, dove straight, straight into the world of business and finance, drawing up the lines of what would become the future ski resort. And he also became the visionary who eventually convinced the neighboring French and Swiss ski towns to link their mountains together, forming a two-country, 12-ski resort ski area with over 600 kilometers of slopes, which would become known as the Port de Soleil, one of the largest ski areas in the world. And not to end there, upon his return from Squaw Valley, the optometrist Roger Pelou immediately offered Jean Varnet partnership in his company, where Varnet would license his name to the brand of sunglasses and designing the Legend O2 model with the Ski Links lenses technology. I do have a pair of these sunglasses, actually, and they do indeed offer very clear vision. And at the same time, I can also appreciate the role of marketing and branding when it comes to the quote-unquote superior vision that Varnay described during his Squaw Valley downhill race. In addition to his business ventures, Varnay also coached the Italian ski team for a while in the 1960s. And I was also debating whether I should even include anything about the tragedy that struck him in the 1990s when his wife and his youngest son committed suicide in a collective suicide by the sect Order of the Solar Templar. The story of Jean Varnet is a successful one, and an entrepreneurial and an innovative one, and it's almost like a tragedy like that doesn't really fit into his story. At the same time, I suppose it's a part of the human experience to go through an amazing life like the one Jean Varnet did, while also enduring some of life's darkest moments. Born in 1933, Jean Varnet died on January 1st, 2017, from a stroke, 18 days before his 84th birthday. And there ends our story on the first Olympic champion on metal skis and the man behind my sunglasses. The sources I used for this episode was the book How to Ski the New French Way by Jean Varnet, and then I also used a lot of open sources on the internet, including some old newspaper articles from the 1950s and the 1960s. Especially interesting were the old articles from the Norwegian newspapers around the 1960s Squaw Valley Olympic Games, as the metal ski debate kept raging. Norwegian skiing pioneer Stein Eriksson was actually quoted celebrating the new technology and the new development, saying that this was the future of skiing. But of course, at that point he had moved to America long ago and he had been radicalized by the new world and the new ways of thinking. The rest of the Norwegian skiing authorities were of course strong opponents to this new type of skis. Surprise, surprise. This was a fairly short episode, which was also quite quick to put together. And this was perfect given my traveling schedule and my turning 40 festivities lately. With two ski heroes in a row being alpine skiers, I think it is time that we move to a different sport for the next episode. 
As usual, I have narrowed it down a bit, although I have not quite yet up my mind who we will highlight next time. I do promise, though, it will not be a French skier, as I cannot take one more episode of trying to pronounce the French names. So until next time, you can stay up to speed on the latest and greatest on the Ski Heroes Instagram page. And if you want to write me, you can do so at skiheroes at gmail.com. Thank you for listening, and take care until next time.